Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel in the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Thomas Hubka to talk about his book, How the Working Class Home Became Modern. Thomas Hubka is Professor Emeritus of Architecture at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and an author of books such as Big House, Little House, Back House, Barn, The Connected Farm Buildings of New England, as well as Resplendent Synagogue and Houses Without Names. Thomas, thank, Tom, thank you very much for being here with me today and talking. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Um. When I was eight years old and um, I guess third grade or so, um, they passed around a uh, career outline and what do you want to be? And I put architect down and that hasn't changed. So um, it's been a long, uh, happy uh, trip for me. And uh, um, that, uh, it's been continually architecture. Most people don't do that. They change, but I didn't. And uh, I'm pleased with that. Um, That's very interesting. I'm oh, sorry. I grew up in New Jersey, um, uh, suburban uh, kid, uh, and I went to Carnegie Mellon University in, in architecture and graduated there. Um, and and I, I've turned into an academic. I, I prim- primarily um, uh, like teaching. I still love teaching when I can. Um, and uh, uh, on the side, uh, for about five years, I practiced in, in, in Maine. Um, I did for me, uh, a load of, of buildings. I would uh, secure the project and I would usually find uh, firms that wanted to work with me um, and produce it and all that. So um, uh, Town Hall in Norway, uh, uh, Episcopal Church in Freeport and uh, Library Edition in Freeport and uh, housing condominiums and things like that. But but I'm an academic and, and I spent most of my life uh, teaching and uh, writing books. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about. Yes. And I, I accidentally interrupted you. I was curious. Most people don't have an interest in being an architect, particularly at a young age. It seems to come at a later age. You know, what, what was your spark as a young child? It was always the visualization, the curiosity about the visual, um, uh, and excitement about, about buildings um, and just the, uh, how they're made and, and, and all that. Uh, I turned out to be more of an anthropologist. And I, I listen pretty well, it seems. Um, um, uh, however, I, I don't write well. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an architect. I, I, I draw and I, I visualize. And um, 
I correct well, luckily. So that's the reason why I, my books can, can be read, I guess. But I'm right. Primary visual. Absolutely. And so we'll dive right into it. So the thing that I wanted to start with, and of course, we'll go into much more detail, but kind of an overview. The thing that was most jarring to me, and I think would be most jarring to most people, is the focus of your book is talking about kind of the, you call it the middle majority, and the fact that there's this this building type and this segment of the population that has almost no architectural study on it. And so I was wondering if you could, I know that's a brief overview, if you could kind of elaborate on that a little more for us. Well, for academics that are out there, um, it, no academic study is, is not right. <laughs> not a lot. And so whenever you go, no, either, there's a, a literature out there. But if you look at the architectural, historical literature about architecture um, within within housing, and so there's lots of other branches and all, um, I think you'll find there, there are, the subject is dominated by big houses, <laughs> architect-designed houses. And so I make a distinction throughout the book that most of the houses that were that I talk about in my, in my books are um, designed by des- uh, builders, <laughs> contractors, developers, builders, etc. Um, and they're a wily group, and uh, the, I've written about their design methods, which is not written about so much and all that. And most of us architects would snicker and <laughs> say, you mean copying uh, and all that. And yes, in a way, but it is the way that most houses have been designed. Um, and if I think if we look at the, uh, the big total of houses, um, my screen just went uh, there. Okay, fine. Um, just, if you just look at the total of, of, of housing, to say it's, it's not studied is... I mean, people know about um, ranch houses, okay, and Levittown, and and other um, uh, uh, groups of houses. But but, and also the title of my book is um, um, "How the Working Class um, Home um, Became Modern, um, 1900 to 1940." And so there's a there's a date in there, and so it's before Levittowns and all that. And so for the for the listener, it's the the house that I'm trying to houses that I'm trying to have you uh, think about are are the po- most popular houses between 19 the early to 20th century. What is that? The bungalow stands out, and others uh, like that, but uh, duplexes and and small what I would call working class houses or working working class cottages um, are the dominant mode. I mean, we just don't think about it that way. And um, one of the things I did was to go into towns and cities and and count historically houses and 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 identify the most dominant types and that would be surprising to many architects or, or uh, average people um, about what those houses would be it's just not a subject you you do a, a lot of times I mean they're humble houses uh, demographically they're smaller kinds of houses and all that but but it's those houses that I've uh, primarily researched. Right. And you actually, you had mentioned the fact that a big challenge here is that you challenge a lot of people's assumptions. If you were to talk about older houses, I think a lot of people, and you do talk about the fact, a lot of people assume that they all look like the larger scale homes that are still around. But the problem is that's not the majority of what was built. That just happens to have, they have a better survival rate. And so you, you had just mentioned the date of the title that I, I mistakenly left out, 1900 to 1940. Could you maybe explain to us a little bit why that time period is so significant in, in your study? Well, the the loaded word in my title is how, how the working class home became modern. And so all of a sudden, us modernist uh, architect types uh, get our 
our hair stands up and all of that. What do you mean by modern? And so I make the, and I have a, a, a diagram of my book comparing a, um, a bungalow, a modest bungalow with a, a version um, of a Corbusier a modern um, house. So, and I say both of these houses are modern because they um, have modern utilities in them, uh, component parts, manufactured parts and all that. Although they look differently, they act similarly. Uh, and both of them have been modernized in some ways. So that it's designed to you know, uh, shake you up a little bit if you've been trained a, a, a certain way. But I think I can sustain that argument about the modernization of domestic life. And that's what, I, so between 1900 to 1940, I say the dominant American middle class modernized their domestic environments. And so, and I count what that, that would be. So they get a three picture bath. And the thing that is the surprise is that I say before they had or got the three fixture bath in the common bungalow about 1920s and all that, um, they had an outhouse. Now, the upper classes in the larger houses had either servants and night uh, soil people to take things out and all that, or early uh, bathroom uh, uh, facilities um, and all. But the working class or the dominant majority culture uh, in America did not have bathrooms until you know, uh, 1900 to 1940. And that's the, so I say during this period, this middle majority of people, whatever you want to call them, middle class, I don't care. But but the numerical um, number of these people, they modernized in their, dom- their domestic traditions. And that needs to be emphasized. And it isn't so much at all emphasized, I think, in the dominant literature of what I call American housing reform. You know, if you look at the books, it isn't that it's a, a sinister um, um, Leak that uh, that eliminates uh, working class houses. It's just that you con- concentrate on larger houses. Also, you concentrate on first application. And if you look at the literature of the technology, housing technology, you concentrate on you know, Thomas uh, Bell, uh, the, the electric light. Uh, you know, bingo, 1880s. Well, when did the electric light get into common houses? It's one of the first utility to come in, but generally after about 1900. The working class achieves electricity and all that. And well, interesting technology with technology. Um, one, if you many of the um, uh, listeners might uh, know the image of a Victorian um, a dining room or, or hall or whatever with, with gas lighting, the, the, the great fixtures of gas lighting. The working class never got gas lighting because. They just simply were, or ga- their houses weren't um, uh, equipped for gas. And when they were about to do that, they got electricity. So they went from candles and and um, uh, kerosene uh, lamps and things like that to electric lights without going through a gas lighting stage. So here's a way that the working class achieved their own development uh, technologically. Uh, but that is not the same. So you don't want to read just about upper class uh, development of gas lighting fixtures and things like that, because there's another story of majority culture. Absolutely. And I'm jumping around a little bit later on in the book, you do kind of mention the fact that it's overlooked a lot that there is a significant, this is not a gradual evolution. There was a very significant change from almost a primitive living situation to a modern, as you just said, and again, I jumped ahead a little bit, but I, I think that was something that st- stuck out to me. You know, the fact that it's not very gradual, like you said, they went from candle right to electricity. Yes, yeah, and 
and of course, the upper classes had a much more gradual uh, because their their gas lighting goes back to the 1880s or 70s in some cases or whatever. Anyway, um, it, it, it means that there's a, a more condensed period. Uh, the development of the porcelain sinks and toil- uh, toilets. Uh, I, rec- I, I emphasize the three fixture bathroom. <laughs> this is the, the trinity of uh, of housing improvement. I mean, it came in a rush in the bungalow type house um, and replaced the uh, the outdoor outhouse um, and it brought an immense uh, change of lifestyle in terms of hygiene privacy uh, child care all the way down the list uh, this is it's big time social change and it happened for a majority of the population um, below the the upper what I'd say upper classes I make a distinction between upper class uh, 20, uh, 20 to 30 percent, the middle majority, 60 percent, and the lower working class, 20 to 30 percent. That changes in time and during depression and all that. But the, as a general working figure, it, 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 it's it's acceptable, I think, with most sociologists who look at things like that, economists. Absolutely. And so you, you had kind of already hinted a little bit, so maybe we can go into it a little more. You had mentioned there later on that you know there's a lot to talk about, but there is kind of nine great improvements to the housing standard. And again, I, I won't ask you to list all nine of them, but you already talked about the idea that you know the three fixture bathroom was a big deal. But I guess I'd be curious to hear a little bit more. You know, some of them, for example, are not something. It does sound like we talk a lot about kind of the utilities and technological, right. but there were other more design ideas, such as you know. Dining, private bedrooms, and specialized rooms instead of the general room. Um, I, I have a list of them. I say nine. I mean, it could be twelve or ten or seven. But um, but the the first three, the most important, are the, the three fixture bathroom, and I would then say utility, modern utilities. Uh, that, that's that's a quantum leap. By and, and anybody who looks at this will say that the, the, the modern utilities. Um, are, are major. And, and then I have a big category to say kitchen appliances, but I, I, the big three I, I would say is washing machine, um, refrigerator, and vacuum cleaner in some ways, because if there's a time, it's woman's work is what it, what it turns out to be. And that was improved uh, dramatically uh, during this period. But as, then I go down and say there are other improvements that are not so important, but they characterized how the working class became middle class. And, and I think the um, the dining room is, is one of the keys there. Um, in, in very humble homes, um, this new room appeared. There was never a dining room out before in the working class before 1900, basically, and all that. People ate in the kitchen ever since Adam and Eve, so it's <laughs> continuous. And and then um, this room, and it is it's it's used for homework. It isn't always used for dining at all because it's, it's you know they. But it, it, it's this place that is enshrined, and, and it becomes a, a working class standard even in modest homes. I didn't say private privacy of bedrooms. Bedrooms are always there a little bit, but what happens in working class homes uh, around, I say around 1900, before 1900, is that in houses of three or four rooms, rooms are multi-used and they're not single purpose. So you don't have a single purpose living room, dining room, kitchen, bed. You know, it it all happens in this, in lots of rooms and particularly like the kitchen, you always see in working class photos, the rare beds within the kitchen. Sometimes the kitchen has the only heat source, so um, that is a, a, a way to. Um, I, I lost the uh, screen. Um, are, do you? We still okay. We still there. Okay. So, um, so 
uh, private bedrooms. Um, another category is houses get bigger. The technology of wood technology in America, it just explodes um, between uh, the Civil War to 1900. And really, we get the shells of houses that are built that are of 21st century standards, actually, with, with the windows and doors of production uh, independently and all that. Um, but the, but the, by 1900, if they, these become the shell becomes very modern, but the inside, the technologies are not there. So there's a kind of uh, that. So the house itself as a building shell um, improves. And then I list little things of more like closets. It's a small item in some ways, but but if you think about a closet, working class houses never had closets. <laughs> it's just oh, because they didn't have anything to store. So, they, but what you get is a, the production of American a cornucopia of of just stuff that starts to pour out of mass production um, uh, after 1900. The Roaring Twenties is really the era I think of of, of dominant housing goods uh, that starts starts to pour out, and this is put into so all of a sudden we have in modest houses linen closets. Uh, whole uh, coat closets in, in the entranceway. <laughs> uh, uh, the, now, this is coupled with the, the production of cotton goods throughout the world and all that. And so lots of things are kicking in here. But nevertheless, um, we have houses that are, I would say, becoming modern. And I, I put into the last ones, recreational porches. Porches are always there in the working class. You can slaughter your pig if you're living in the countryside. But now we have a porch for the eight-hour day, for uh, for the possibility of recreation. And so the bungalow, I think, uh, She's that, and the, I list the automobile last because it, it changes American culture on all levels, and it, no one, no one would disagree. With I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off thank you that was a great explanation of all of that and that's kind of another assumption that i know i personally i i guess i even as an architect had always assumed that maybe houses weren't as comfortable and as nice as they are but they were always very similar whereas you actually mentioned that you know with an emphasis more on utilitarianism whether comfort you know and for example you list nine common houses and i would urge anyone listening to look them up and there's one that's called the shotgun, which is a literal row of rooms that you have to walk through to get to each room. And so as an architect, I looked at that and I cringed at the idea of walking through rooms to get to it. <laughs> and again, so that kind of challenged the assumption that houses didn't look like our houses do now. They were much different. As you said, you didn't have a bedroom that was just for you to sleep in. There wasn't a room that you just ate food in. You just had a series of rooms that you did everything and everywhere. It's very, it's surprising. So uh, I think an important part of my research uh, um, uh, 
it's in the beginning of the book, as I say, here are nine houses or they're the most dominant houses in America in 1900 or before improvement started. You know what? There are three or four rooms and they have names that no one knows, just specialists and all that, I House and Side Gable. I mean, nobody agrees on their names. And even in architectural literature is usually dominated by upper class houses that you can name styles, the Greek Revival and colonial and all that well these these houses may have a little architectural detail on it but you can't and one of my i guess em- major emphasis in my research in which i i, I uh, like to think i try to enforce and would be a good idea for most historians is to uh, evaluate these houses by plan and this is the thing architects do we we, we memorize plan i mean that's what are they the typology of plan and if you don't do plan, you'll never you'll never record these houses because they, they just disappear into stylistic categories. In other words, from the outside, it doesn't it's 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 hopeless to try to categorize them. But by plan, solid. And the, and the further down you go into the working class, the more common ordinary plans you have. Not identical, not like you know like molecules or anything like that, but a typology that we understand from the way local builders. Uh, make architecture you mentioned the shotgun um it's it's the only regionals uh, house that i have on my list here of of the most common houses in 1900 it's a southern house it, it's a, actually the only house with um, african uh, uh, origins or creole african uh, there's different ways of looking at that and it's i smile because it's the most commonly known house name there but People, but most Northerners or Westerners have never been in a shotgun. I have not. <laughs> so, I have so never. All been of a sudden, one. here's a house that nobody knows, but it's very common in the South. That's why I listed it um, uh, as as one of the uh, dominant houses in 1900 uh, for most people. Yeah, and you had mentioned, you know, what, people's familiarity. You know, I won't pretend to be all over, but I've done a lot of home inspections. I've worked on a lot of debilitated buildings. I have not actually encountered a lot of these building types. So I wonder if what's your area? Where, I forget where you're from. What, what, where I'm in Rochester. I'm in Rochester, New York. Oh, right, right. Okay. Well, um, we call it the side gable, and that's this farmhouse that's out there in in, in vast numbers. It's uh, we, Temple and Wing is the way you call it, and it has the uh, classical uh, gable in the front, and then a, a, a side gable for the for the side, the kitchen. You've, you've you've probably seen that. Okay, in your area, that's a dominant dominant working class. Kind of house. It's also a house that can get bigger and be a, a, a wealthy farmer can have the same kind of house too. So that that can happen, you know, because it's just simply the absolutely. House and so you had mentioned that uh, you, you you were very honest about some of the challenge you faced. You've even talked about it here. And one thing I'd love to hear more about is you have mentioned a big challenge is you know poor documentation. So you have these old houses that weren't documented well, but then between residents and permanence and continuous renovations and rehabilitation. A lot of these have, I guess, for lack of a better term, started to fade away almost. Um, you know, you could do the Google search and find a lot of houses. But, you know, when you're looking at the, the, the picture from the street, um, you don't know if that house has been remodeled. I mean, I live in a neighborhood that there's no house. Uh, it's in a middle, upper middle neighborhood and, and every house has been expanded. But you wouldn't know that. But but if I get a builder in, in any town in America and go around, we can nail that with, you know, what are the additions from the outside? But what are the additions? And it's it's that's it's what I've done all my life. And so well, I can talk about the plan typology. The, the, every house has a parent or parents and ancestry. And, and you can you know talk about that. And so 
there's a kind of um, democrat, uh, democracy of houses that I try to preach about. Uh, all houses have history. People look at the little houses and, you know, it's, <laughs> but, you know, it, it has a, just like the big houses, they have a, uh, there's a Michelangelo in the background and, and we may not know the name, but uh, there's, 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 a de- there's a design development. Absolutely. And so, you know, keeping with the theme, you know, this kind of this ignored segment of buildings, you know, later on, you mentioned that even when it comes to multi, you know, it, it, we've been talking a lot of what sounds like single family, but even the multifamily, again, just like everything else, a lot of literature kind of focused on either the incredibly destitute or the lavish, but there was a very large middle majority of that, not just single family, but multifamily as well. Yes. Um a good portion of my book emphasizes multifamily housing, and the literature, of course, concentrates on the single-family house. It's it's the the gold standard of of, of most houses in some ways. But uh, during the period I look at, nineteen hundred to nineteen forty, uh, fifty-five to sixty percent of of the families, family units, were multi-unit. Wow, that's a, those those are big numbers. Now, multi-unit can be a, um, a single-family house subdivided. In, into multi-unit house, and the duplex uh, is one of my favorites. It just stands out as as a working class house uh, during this period. And had the, had the had the depression not uh, cut off the development of the duplex, and then uh, New Deal policy support um, single family housing, the duplex was online to compete with the single family house in terms of housing production in America. But all of a sudden, after the depression, that changes. Uh, because of um, lending policies and and zoning uh, changes uh, simultaneously. So anyway, the working class duplex and, and and I say duplex is the term is the nineteenth late nineteenth century term and all that. But we don't have it too flat. If you're a midwesterner, it's just one one you know one plan over another plan. It's a it's it's the most common uh, uh, duplex in, in America, and and in, in all over America, it represented re- housing reform because. These duplexes were almost always produced with the most up-to-date technologies and others, new, new bathrooms and modern utilities and all that for, for various reasons I could go into. But um, so they represented, um, as they don't do now, they could, you know, it's just, it's modest um, working class uh, accommodations now, perhaps in the uh, urban fringe areas that, where duplexes occurred, but they were. At one time, always considered that. Um, New England has a, a version of that. It's the, the three-decker, uh, if you use that term. Most people understand a little. They've seen uh, New England that way. If you think about that, that is the um, three units that are stacked on top of each other. And and I call this the bungalow plan. Again, there's no common name. We can call it a lot of things. You can call it the three-decker plan. But it's a two parallel uh, lines of rooms. And the big one, design-wise, is, is, is the... Holy Trinity of living room, dining room, kitchen along one side of the house. Almost, you know, 80% of your listeners have been in a house like that. And along the other side of the house are the bedrooms, usually a double loaded bath uh, on the other side of the house. Anyway, the most popular floor plan, the bung- this bungalow plan in America before the ranch house here, before the World War II. Um, and these, uh, I'm saying this based on my statistics of case studies throughout the nation and all that. I invite lo- anyone else. <laughs> to to uh, say oh no, no there's another plan out there well fine uh, whatever you want uh, uh, I I've worked with the best scholars in the in the best and no, don't have to be scholars sometimes the best person is some a planning person who know, happens to know common houses and 
my scouts can, 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 can figure who that out is. And then I go interview them you know, and we go around and we look at the common houses of, of your town. I still do that. I love to do it. Is that right? Well, one question I ask at the end, but maybe now is a better time with that segue. You know, I, I often am curious, you know, so what have you worked on since the book has come out? Sounds like you still are kind of researching this topic a little bit. Yes, this is a continuous topic. I like the Russians who do uh, steel mills and dams in their five and 10 year plan. Uh, I have uh, 15 years it takes me to do a book, uh, mostly because I can't uh, write so well and all that. I would correct a lot, but. So I, I have a couple, um, the, the common houses of Portland, Oregon, where I live, I, uh, that's, that's on the, on the horizon, but I'd like to see the reaction to this book. And there's a couple topics in this book. Uh, um, there's also like boarding houses I talk about an, uh, <laughs> a bastard child of, of neglect. Uh, this is a, you know, these are the small, um, uh, single, uh, unit, um, uh, apartments that are out there uh, uh, near the bus depot or whatever else you, you live out there that are just not not recorded. Well, there's a history of that. Uh, the, the Tenement Museum in New York, have you heard about that uh, museum? It's uh, it's a tenement museum that, that, that is the remarkable uh, cache of, 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 of history that, that came along with that. So we can see the development of common families within a tenement uh, house building, but it's, you know, there are tenement house histories of very modest buildings uh, throughout the country of, of you know five ten rooms or something like that 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 constitute a big portion of working class uh, living uh, in America before the reform. And that's a great point. You know, that's so you do talk about the fact that I think a lot more, if I understood correctly, a lot more people had borders and renters despite the discomfort than we were led to believe just because of the economic Absolutely. benefit. Yeah. It's a it's a tough reading because it uh, the family is usually torn between uh, the discomfort of of, of sharing right. your four rooms with one other person and that being one of the only extra sources of income that a working class right. family could possibly. Have. So um, it's a kind of split of uh, how how you should live. Right. Absolutely. And so on that topic, as much as I didn't want this interview to be me kind of having all my assumptions challenged, there was one more that I would love to hear more about, you know, and it could be my own personal bias. I watched a lot of Western movies growing up. So I think I, along with a lot of people, have that idea that people bought a kit house, took it home, and they and their family put their house together. Now, I'd like, I'd like you to explain it a little more, but the reality is that's kind of not the case. I was, I, it's on my list too of talking about that. And when I and around the country, was I, I lecture in various places, I can't go into a lecture hall and, and, and not say, "And what about the kid house?" You know, after I you know that I'm talking about common houses. Well, you know, usually it's the male contingent here that says, "Well, let me tell you." Um, and it's a, it's it's a cracking good story. I mean, here's the boxcar that pulls up, and it's got every component in it. And the thrifty owner, along with the local builder, takes every and then puts the house together. You know, doesn't that feel good? Okay, I call this a creation story, and um, it, it's a it's a good story, but it tells us a very small portion of the production of houses in America. By my figures, it's about three percent. That's point zero three percent, or maybe five percent. But the problem is that you get a lot of kid, semi kid house. Um, that they they ship out the uh, the hardware, you know, and the windows, but they don't do the lumber. 
you ain't shipping out lumber to Oregon, the capital of the Douglas fir industry uh, during this time from Chicago and make that work. It's just, uh, anyway, uh, you say I'm getting excited here about that. But the, the point is that the Kit House, it tells only a very tiny fraction of the story of how houses are built. How houses get built during this period are by hundreds of thousands of, of small contractor builders who work with pattern books and sometimes they have an architect design and sometimes, but their own traditions of vernacular traditions that, that construct these houses. It's a very difficult topic to research. And, and gee, uh, if I was a researcher, I'd go to a kid house. It's a, it's a, it's a cool story and it's quick and easy, but it's so, it's so minor. Now, a lot of people are turned off. <laughs> so please don't turn off. Um, just just recognize that that your your story is 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 about a very small proportion of the housing industry, uh, the, the production of houses and kit houses are you know they're legitimate they they occur but in very small proportions. Are, are, do you right. feel bad? Do you feel <laughs> can I kick the the, the skids out of your uh, whatever anyway? Well, no, like I said, when I first read it, that's the first thing that came to mind is, again, I watched a lot of Western movies, and that's the image. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, a, a companion one that you should also think about is the owner-builder. And I would call this the myth of the owner-builder. Are there owner-builders? Of course. Uh, during the, uh, um, uh, the pioneer days in, in, in the Midwest, everyone built their own house more or less in some ways. But between the Civil War to 1900, the, this owner-builder – the, the West disappears. The, the frontier disappears. Okay, and so we have the the development of the construction industry, and and by 1900, the owner builder is completely limited because you have the development of of technological production of of electricity and plumbing and things like that. That's so far beyond uh, of average builders. And there's no Home Depot. There's no uh, YouTube uh, seminars out there or anything like that. But so anyway, another three to 5% maybe, but the problem with home builders is that you have a partial participation of the owner. That's cool. Okay. That happens and all that, but usually when you say owner, owner builder, it's, it's the total package and that's rare. It has been rare. It still is rare and all that, but you can see how the literature tends to support some because it's just heroic, right? Absolutely. I would say of all the assumptions challenged in my mind, at least personally, I think that would be the one that I think a lot of, I think it's a generally accepted fact and you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes that people <laughs> built their own homes. So I think out of all of them, that's probably in my mind, the most widespreadly accepted. I don't know if you agree with that or. Of course. And I do. And particularly if you're in a rural area, whoa, Absolutely. if you know farmers, farmers can fix anything and they do, but, but if you study farm production of houses and barns in, in most areas of the country, you'll find that the local farmer hired or, or, or got a local builder to come in to build a barn. Okay. I, I always show a picture at my lectures about Farmer Jones's barn. I said, who built Farmer Jones's barn? And of course, everyone says Farmer Jones. I said, well, wait a minute. A and I showed the local builder who's anonymous and all that. Did Farmer Jones help with that? Oh, absolutely. You know. You know, and and sometimes they help in big ways, but they didn't carry the, uh, the 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 technical uh, wherewithal to, with the notching and all that that average farmers didn't do. So anyway, there is another myth of 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 common houses that needs to be debunked a little bit uh, to understand the local production of common builders, uh, you know, in the production of common houses. 
Absolutely. And so, as I said, we did this out of order. I already asked what you've been working on, but maybe someday we could talk again about all your other books as well. I've already looked into them myself. So, So, yeah. So for those listening, you know, whether you're an architect or not, I guarantee you have all the same assumptions I did. And so the book is How the Working Class Home Became Modern, 1900 to 1940. I would very much recommend it. Uh, Tom, I want to thank you again for being on here and talking with us today. Can I put a plug for the University of uh, Minnesota Press? Absolutely. They did such a good job. I'm very pleased with it. My my little baby. (laughs) Absolutely. And we'll be hearing about some of these other books from them as well in future episodes. And to everyone listening, thank you and have a great day. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.